And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're talking about One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston. Romance, new genre for RGBC and also a little bit for me and Harmony. Harmony, you want to talk a little bit about your relationship with romance? Okay, yes. I'm actually prepared because this summer I wrote a whole article about it for one of the institutions I work for. So, once upon a time, there was a nine-year-old girl who was handed a book called The Undomestic Goddess by Sophie Kinsella or Sophie... Yeah, there we go. Okay, so I said it right. And I read it, and there was a sex scene that was very exciting. And I did a few other Sophie Kinsella books as a young lass, and then I never touched romance again. Until... I was looking for books that maybe dealt with the topic of disability a little bit, and Maggie recommended me this wonderful book called Get a Life, Chloe Brown, which we will be reading on the next episode. And ever since, I've really been digging romance because it's fantastical and it's it's a wonderful fantasy. And even though I have a pretty loving relationship, it's still nice to be able to escape into other romantic relationships. I don't know. I've I've been digging the romance genre. What's your relationship, Maggie? I would say that as a teenager, I often gravitated towards young adult books that had a heavy sprinkling of romance in them. I've talked about before my kind of complicated relationship with Cassandra Clare's books, but that was really my gateway into loving a romance in novels. But I never really read romance kind of solely, I would say, until 2020. And at that point, I got initially really into historical romance, which makes sense. I like historical fiction anyways. A lot of my life deals with history. And that was sort of my gateway. Then I read the Brown, Get a Life, Chloe Brown, and recommended it to Harmony. And now romance has become a more regular, I would say, rotation that I read, especially when I do feel overwhelmed and feel like I do really just need some comfort. I found that for myself and my tastes, I tend to prefer books that read, I think, a little bit more like contemporary fiction that focus on a relationship versus maybe something that's more romance or erotica heavy that's just tends to be where I where I go. Emily Henry, I think, is a good example. One Last Stop, I think, is also a good example. Honey, exa- Honey Girl is a good example. Those are two books that, I mean, obviously we're talking about One Last Stop today, but we're also going to talk about Honey Girl later. Those are books that, for me, I feel like really have encapsulated what it feels like to sort of just be on that millennial Gen Z cusp right now, having that midlife crisis trying to figure out why late-stage capitalism is so terrible. I mean, I know why late-stage capitalism is so terrible, but bonding over it with some characters. So I would say that that's been 
my relationship with romance thus far is I'm really just dipping my toes into it, but enjoying it overall. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we both came to this genre during the pandemic and during COVID, and especially in relationship to this book, because this book takes place during COVID times, but in a world where COVID does not exist. Yeah, but it's, it's like many people, uh, our reading habits, I think, have leaned more towards, or at least my reading habits have leaned more towards the comforting since COVID happened. And I think that romance has been really important for that because I think that it's so often looked down upon as a genre because it's silly and tropey and cliche and that's okay sometimes. It's okay to be fluffy and silly and cliche and tropey. And I think One Last Stop, even though it's a fun book, has a lot of that in there. It's very fantastical. And, and fantasy-based, which I'm sure we'll get into more because I actually live in New York City and I'm 20-something. <laughs> and uh, as much as I wish my life looked like this, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think there's a good balance between this book dealing with some genuine real issues, like a lot of real issues, some of which are really heavy, A major crux of this novel actually deals in a real LGBTQIA hate crime that occurred in the 70s. And it also talks a bit about the AIDS crisis and things like that. So it's not shying away from the hard realities of life by any means, I don't think. But there is that lightness, that fluffiness, that I guess just that sense that even if you don't have everything figured out, everything's going to be okay at the end. And I feel like that's really a message that I've needed more over the past couple of years than I ever have in my life. (laughs) I think that overall, there's been a lot less of my reads that probably skew towards comforting. I really like the dark and gritty, even when life is dark and gritty. But I feel like the fact that I've sort of discovered romance at all showcases the fact that clearly even if I'm only reading it once every two or three months there is a place in my life where I need that comfort where I need that lightness and where I need things to be laugh out loud funny I laughed reading one last stop I think that McQuiston has a really on the nose sense of sort of what humor is like right now for people our age or at least I found them very funny in this novel so it's been interesting for me as a reader to sort of look at that landscape of my reading and find a place for some of those lighter emotions when I'm typically drawn so much towards the dark. Before we start fully into this book, and before, just so you know, we're, we're talking about romance because we're going to be going on a journey of romance novels. But before we get into our romance series, I want to talk to you really quickly about the idea of the romance hero, or in this case, heroine, the romantic love interest, and how... Whether you think that's problematic or what that does for people, for readers, for getting this perfect romantic love interest. I know readers may remember, listeners may remember that last year I read the Bridgerton series and a lot of those heroes and love interests were not perfect. But a lot of the books that we're going to be looking at, I think, really do have these magnificent love interests that make me swoon. Like, one last stop. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, I think there's an argument that could be made that it's like a a Disney movie packaged for adults in the sense that it's all about, it could be setting up an an ideal that isn't 
that you're never really going to find in real life. But I think that at least in the romance books that I like, something that they push up against, even though they are sometimes idealized, these kind of romantic love interests is the fact that the ones that stick with me feel like very fully fledged, fully formed characters with strong personalities, with strong likes and dislikes, and who are flawed in some way, even if it's not necessarily showcased so much in the romantic relationship. I think to me, the novels that I find more problematic on that front are the novels where everything is very clearly set up to be a reader insert. And that's not always bad in every context. Like many people, I love fan fiction. A lot of fan fiction is about reader insert. But I feel like in a romance novel specifically, if something is geared to be so that you specifically can step into the main character's shoes and sort of imagine anyone as being the love interest and they're acting perfectly, that's where I push up against it a little bit more saying, is this really what real life is like? Should we really be selling this as the dream here? And I feel like when I'm dealing with characters that feel fully fledged, fully formed characters, at least personally, I mind it less and I find it less problematic because with a fully formed character, there's going to be some sort of flaw in there and not everyone's going to drive with their personality, if that makes sense. Interesting, because I feel like I can definitely see that in the Brown Sisters, which we'll talk about next episode in terms of their love interests, right? Because I think that they do all have these big issues that need to be worked through throughout the story. But in a story like One Last Stop, Even though Jane has personal issues, it's not something, aside from outside issues, she has no control over. It's not something that I feel like would make her less palatable as a love interest. I still love it. I love being there. I love seeing Jane, especially because I'm in a a heterosexual relationship right now. And so as somebody who does not get to experience or has not experienced a lot of woman-loving woman romances, it is really important that I get that idea and that I can kind of insert myself into August's shoes, especially with a character like Jane, who is just so fantastic. Oh, see, I found Jane... Not that I found her to be land at all by any means, but I think especially with the really, really strong punk aesthetic, that to me, I think made her feel more unique. And the fact that she's literally trapped in 1970s (laughs) and, and all of her references are there. Not that that would, I guess, necessarily put me off, but to me, that was enough of a conflict and felt really so part of her character that... I guess I just didn't have that issue because of those two things mainly. Okay. Maybe she's just my dream woman. Maybe I want my dream woman to be trapped in the 1970s. (laughs) I'm not typically attracted to butch women. So maybe that's part of it for me. Okay. So let's give a summary since we've already talked a little bit about One Last Stop. One Last Stop is about a girl named August. And Maggie, you can take off wherever and she <laughs> she has this relationship with her mom who is a little bit crazy. She's she's the daughter of a single mother, and I mean crazy in the best of ways. But her mom is obsessed with the disappearance of her brother, not August's brother, her mom's brother. And so she's kind of, August kind of lives like a true crime detective life. 
And she is 24, I think, when the novel starts. Is that 23? 23. Okay. So she's a little bit older. She's a little bit older in terms of being an undergraduate, but she's still an undergraduate. She's perfectly smart. She keeps moving and changing schools. She doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. And she winds up in Brooklyn, New York, in Flatbush, which is not typically where we see where we see transplant protagonists. And she ends up working at a pancake shop and is adopted by these beautiful queers. Maggie, you can take it from here. <laughs> and then she meets Jane on the subway. She re- she posts in Missed Connections, essentially being like, oh my gosh, who is this woman? And through a series of reading through that Missed Connections post, as well at what she does. Did she post in Miss Connections? I think the Miss Connections were a bunch of other women talking no, about she, Jane. She discovers them, but she initially posted in Miss Connections, I thought. Miss Connections doesn't exist in 2020 unless we're talking about lesbian Craigslist Maggie, which isn't real, by the way. <laughs> I thought she made a post somewhere, but regardless, she dis- she continues to sort of run into Jane and discover things about Jane throughout the novel until she realizes that Jane is trapped in the subway and is originally from the 1970s. And from there, the book kind of goes in, I would say, three directions. The first being the love story between August and Jane. The second being getting Jane out of the subway slash into 2020. And then the third, which is in some ways incidental, but is related to the other two is solving the mystery of what happened to her uncle. And kind of as part of that, discovering a little bit more what she actually wants to do with her life and being able to make her own choices about the true detective nature of her life. Because a lot of the tension with her mother was that, for a lot of her life, she was caught up in a, a true crime show that she had very little consent or say into her involvement in. And so kind of taking that aspect of her life back into her control. And all of three of these things are very much interconnected. But I would say those are sort of the three main directions that the story goes plot wise after they meet. I agree. I would also add to that. This book does a really good job, uh, because August is our protagonist, of not just making it about the love interest, but also in the love story, but also working on August's development as a character. Because she starts the story off really prickly and kind of isolated because, you know, she is the kid of a single parent who's been dealing with some sort of trauma, and she herself has been she's now carrying on that trauma and working through it by herself. And like I mentioned before, she is adopted by these magical queers who really teach her how to love. And that's not just extended in the romantic sense. They teach her how to be open and how to accept community and how to accept good things and how to believe in magic. It's very much a found family story, both between her and her roommates and the people who live in her apartment complex. And then also to a slightly lesser extent, but still prevalent, the people she worked with at the Pancake Diner. And so this is a book that focuses really, really heavily on community. And I would say as part of that on healing, 
not just as an individual, but how healing can be a community-wide event. And community doesn't necessarily mean that it has to touch every single person who's touched by an event, but that you as a human are part of a larger tapestry of people and that your healing journey can influence and affect them equally. Because August goes on a journey that is both personally healing for her, but also does have implications for the larger queer community and people who knew Jane and her uncle and a large tapestry of people that were in New York City. I agree. It's beautiful. That makes me want to cry. And, you know, it's a dream. (laughs) You know, this wasn't thinking about this found family aspect. It makes me really happy. It was one of my favorite parts of the book. I think that it, for me, is what pushed the book to being such a such a favorite and something that really warmed my heart and stuck with me. But if we're talking about unrealistic expectations, I will say the one thing that really stuck out to me was August finds a lot of leeway in our capitalistic world in this novel in that she misses a lot of work and she misses a lot of school and everything kind of magically turns out okay. And I feel like for me, more than anything, that was the sticking point of man, this really is the fantasy escape. Because if this was happening in our current society in New York City in 2020, this shit would not fly. No, no. I think especially too, because I mean, we're all super isolated because of the pandemic. But also in New York City, it's incredibly hard to find friends. This is just a known fact of being in New York City. And I guess... August is an undergrad, right? And I think that for a lot of people, I mean, Maggie and I can both speak to our experiences, that is an easy place to find community. But her experiences are very much more like her age, where she's, you know, a 20-something adult, and she's with all these 20-something adults, and people just magically kind of accept her and love her no, no matter what she does. And that too does set up a more unrealistic expectation because it's hard. It's hard to find community sometimes, especially because we live in a really individualistic society where everybody's got their own things going on. And it's hard to find people you jive with. And it's hard to keep those connections up too. I mean, not to take things too off topic, but it really just was one of the things that stuck out to me about the book. But I mean... Harmony and I have been friends for almost a decade now, and often the only times that we actually have a chance to connect and talk are before or after we record these podcast episodes. So it's true. I, think, I don't believe texting. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like one of those things about being an adult. I think that Casey McQuiston was wise in some ways to keep August in undergrad, both metaphorically because it really did symbolize the fact that she felt really lost and journeyless, and it was very much stated that she was kind of prolonging that journey for herself because she didn't know where she wanted to go and she was having trouble making choices. But also it did help to sort of smooth over some of that unbelievability about how quickly she made friends. But then again, the undergraduate portion wasn't focused on too much. So it was sort of a a weird give and take. But that is a world I would like to live in. I feel like every city is almost known for being really difficult to make friends in because Seattle is also one of those cities that's infamously difficult because everyone's so friendly on the surface but has no desire to actually make a connection. But I feel like it's just hard to connect with other adults. That's just yeah. where we're at in yeah. society right now. <laughs> everyone works too much to have time and capacity to be kind and friendly to other humans. Yeah. (laughs) And you're also less often in places where you have a shared context of interest. Yeah. Yeah. 
But speaking of the friends, the fabulous friends, another cool thing about this beautiful community is that all of the characters are amazing and lovable and it's easy you can you can romantically fall in love with every single one of these characters so first we got nico who (laughs) this i felt was funny living in new york because it's just such a this book really should have taken place in bushwick Just so you know, just so everyone knows, Bushwick is the place where all of the artsy gay people live. But Nico is a fortune teller. I guess he's not. He's a psychic. Yes, he's a psychic. He happens to be trans. It took me a long time to actually figure that out, too. And he's described as beautiful, just as a human, physically. And he's constantly predicting things about people and telling them about their life and what they need to know. He's just like a walking tarot deck. And that was great. That was great (laughs) as a New Yorker because there's just such a stereotype here that everyone has some sort of, all the alt people are are secretly spiritual and secretly tarot readers, but not so secretly. (laughs) And then there was Myla, who is also incredibly hot and is Nico's partner. I think they end up getting engaged by the end. And she is, she's this steampunk goddess i guess (laughs) she invents things but she's also an artist she's also sort of the mom friend of the group if you were going to assign stereotypical roles like that she's often the person who's kind of keeping everyone together and on track shall we say yes yes and then we have wes and he's the curmudgeon He's also beautiful and he's a vampire. This is another funny New York fact, I guess. I guess it would it would also be like a college thing too. Like you always have that one roommate who you never see because they live on different hours. That is Wes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you do always have that one roommate. <laughs> yes. Who was our roommate? Did we have a roommate we never saw? Oh wait, was it me? No, it was Mari. Oh, yeah. Mari does live on different hours. Mari lives on different hours, but it works for them. So They probably don't anymore because they have different hour jobs. And then we have Wes's love interest, who we didn't have written down in our... in our, our uh, Oh, Annie Depressant. That's who you wrote down. What's Annie mm-hmm. Depressant's real name? That's I think Jamie. Drag- okay, I Jamie. Think, I, I think Jamie is, there, is his real his name. His real name. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then Jamie is also described as really hot. (laughs) All of August's friends are these beautiful humans. And that's why I keep referring to them as magical, because she's just actually kind of a little bit in love with all of them, which is probably a typical experience, maybe, if you have a group of wonderful queer friends. I don't know. (laughs) I think that, I, I mean, again, they all also had very distinct personalities there was no blending of the side characters which for me sometimes can be an issue in some of the romances that I really like is that the side characters can be kind of interchangeable or or there's maybe only one or two side characters so that you don't really have to contend with that much but McQuiston in this novel really develops a full cast of characters and you can tell them all apart and they all have their own things going on In that way, this novel very much felt like almost like a reality TV show where you were just peering into this apartment complex and being, oh, what are all of these humans up to? This seems fun. (laughs) Or at least that was my experience reading it. Yeah. 
I know we're not a review podcast, but yeah, I agree. I kind of like that better when we have full casts of characters. And I like too that, like Maggie said, they all were fleshed out individuals. They all had one-on-one time with August. There wasn't ever a moment where he's like, well, you know, Nico is just Myla's boyfriend or anything like that. Nico still got his time. Is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of community? What about the pancake store or the pancake diner? <laughs> and like how that plays a role in community. I thought that the diner was a really lovely community building aspect in a couple of ways. First, we had another set of side characters there that were all really fully fleshed out who saved August, but often because she was mission shifts left and right fucking co-workers over to be perfectly honest, and they loved her anyways. But then also, I think that you really, I mean, this novel touch, touches a little bit on gentrification, because it talks about the fact that institutions like tiny pancake diners are really what make neighborhoods feel like communities and feel like places that are institutions that you go to, that you know the people who own it and run it and you and you love them. And when those pieces of history disappear, it's, it is a real loss to the neighborhood. And they do it so beautifully because late in the novel, you find out that Jane also, she either was a regular there or she worked also at the same diner. There was the Sue special, which Jane created, which August had been eating the whole time without really realizing that it was connected to Jane. So you really see the way the sort of time travel aspect works, but it's all about this history and this connection and this community building that I think worked really well, even if it logistically was one of the things that I found a little bit difficult to believe sometimes as a reader. Yeah, I agree. Speaking as a gentrifier, because I'm a New York City transplant, so I am I am the gentrifier. I think that it's not hard to believe that new people would rally around a pancake house like this because us, you know, alternative New York City gentrifiers, <laughs> we really like authentic stuff, right? That's the whole thing. Oh, I didn't mean that part of it. I meant how many shifts they let her miss while letting her keep her job. That was the logistical part that I felt kind of unbelievable. No, I know. Not the rallying I think, around. I think this is also kind of a logistical thing, though. The fact that, I mean, I guess we, we talked a little bit about rent, but I don't think that gentrifying was really depicted in this novel very well. Because August is a gentrifier. And we just leave it as is. And it it makes sense that the community would come around and want to support the Pancake House. And it makes sense that the Pancake House wouldn't close because it did have such a, it it had a history, right? Mm. And we love that. We love that as transplants. We love anything that feels authentic. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I think that my experience as as a, a transplant to a new city is a lot different because Seattle, as the birthplace of Starbucks and Amazon and Microsoft, does struggle so much, I think, against keeping institutions. And there is a huge community here of people who do fight for that, whether they grew up here or not. But that's a good point. I think that in this circumstance, my perspective on that is probably skewing how I'm reading this aspect of the book. I understand. I understand. I will be here to talk about all the New York City stuff that this book messed up. <laughs> all right. Can we can we get the biggest elephant out of the room? The Q train? Yeah. Well, the, the sex scene on the on the Q train. Oh my god. That was a lot. And I know that there was magic happening and that in the moment it felt very clean and there was nobody else there. But there were multiple sex scenes. <laughs> 
sexy times on yeah. the cute train. So many sexy times on the cute train. I couldn't. I mean, I've I've been on subways in many cities. I've I've been on the subway in New York City, even though I've never left. That I could not divorce reality from fiction there. And I was like, what is happening? I know that in order to make a romance novel that's supposed to be steamy, but also has to be set on a subway train, that's complicated. But I, I struggled. I'm not going to lie. It was like my biggest con of the book was I just couldn't divorce all of the images of me sitting in a weirdly dirty New York subway from my mind while reading. Okay, so I read Maggie's notes and Maggie put this exact sentiment into her notes. And so how do I, every time I see a hot butch lady and or a butch person in a leather jacket, I now have fantasies about doing fun stuff on the train. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. So I live somewhere where all of our trains are kind of new. My main train has been upgraded Mm. and I'm towards the end of the line. So for the most part, it's pretty clean when I get on and I'm used to an empty train because I'm towards the end of the line. And recently this week, actually, I rode the Q train for the first time because COVID happened and the MTA is sick. And so all the trains are messed up. So now I have to ride the Q, which is very sad. But anyway, the Q train is not a sexy train in particular. (laughs) (laughs) The Q train is, uh, it's like, it's a, it's a rundown, dirty, always overpacked train. Although I've never been to Flatbush, so maybe that's towards the end of the line. I don't know. So now I get it. Now I get what Maggie's saying, but also I get the desire to fuck on the MTA. Especially when it's an empty train. And they have been cleaner, too, because of COVID, because they wipe them down, you know, every cycle. Fair enough. I had specifically been on the Q train when I made this note, but the last time I rode... I'm trying to think. The last time I wrote, I was in New York City riding a subway was probably in 2018 or 2019. So like it has been a few years, but <laughs> this was coming with the knowledge of having ridden the Q trade and knowing what it is typically like. So <laughs> just throwing that out there. Yeah, don't don't fuck on the Q train. <laughs> no, apparently, especially not the Q train. Yeah, I don't know that I necessarily have anything else to say about that, but I feel like it did just need to be thrown out there it just needed to be in the ether okay here's the thing though here's the thing and this is why i think it actually does a really good job of playing into the fantasy because the subway is such a central part of new york city life and because you know we all have we go on the subways kind of the same time so we're kind of riding with the same people every time the subway is prime it's a prime place to meet people yeah, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. That's that's real. I think that that's true of a lot of people who t- take public transit at the same time every day. Really? Really? Do, are there lots of subway meet cutes in other places? I mean, I don't know about the subway specifically, but I definitely watched meet cutes happen when I was riding the bus constantly because I was riding at the same time on the same bus with the same people every day. So I don't know. I, I think that in some ways that's probably just a function of the way public transit works, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. You're, you're right that there is an aspect of that that does make sense because you do often run into the same people at the same time every day. And even if you're not actually making a meet cute happen, I think it, I think a lot of people have the fantasy of the meet cute, right? Yeah. You see that cute person across the bus or across the train every day. 
So that was wise. It was just the sex scenes to me that were a little like, this is complicated to make work right now. And I don't know if it's working for me. I imagine those sex scenes as though they were on the end. And it's much more appealing. That's a better train to fuck on. Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) I have seen rose petals on the floor before. So maybe. Ooh. All right. Let's move on from the train. We've talked about community. Let's talk about healing. I really relate to August's character as a child of a single parent and somebody who, you know, carries my generational trauma (laughs) throughout life. And also as somebody who really has a hard time making new friends and trusting people because August, you know, she, she grew up as a true crime detective, essentially. And so she doesn't trust anyone. And that's just her default. And that is kind of my default, too. Even though I don't come across as prickly, I feel like I have, I'm very good at isolating myself. And that's, that feels like a lot safer. But I really appreciated that community was able, we've talked a little bit about this, to help August heal. Part of me wishes this book was a little bit more realistic in its community aspect, because I would just love to be able to take that as a template and apply it to my real life. But I can't really. But it's okay, because it's a fantasy novel ultimately like it it is it's escapism so I don't need to apply it to my real life I just need to escape and be happy yeah no I think that there is a August's personal healing journey is really interesting as somebody who is unabashedly pretty prickly when you first meet Harmony makes fun of me because the way I meet friends is I'll scope you out for like two weeks three weeks first to decide like a stalker that, like a uh, decide that you're okay and then make my move so even if I don't necessarily seem prickly on the first the first interaction it's because I have a lot of defense mechanisms before that first interaction happens So I do think in that way, August felt like a really realistic, relatable character. I feel like her cynicism, everywhere you go, the cynic is the way that August is described, but it is accurate. And I feel like McQuiston did a good job at setting up the circumstances that led to that. And I think as well, August is really disillusioned with the world and you don't blame her. And I think that watching her start to believe in magic again, start to believe in love, find her place a little bit more, find her path is really healing on a personal level. I agree with you that it would have been nice if the way some of those things happened was more realistic. I mean, even some of the true crime stuff where we find out what actually happened to her uncle Mm -hmm. isn't particularly believable, but it is wholesome and healing. And I think that when you're writing a novel like this, that is clearly so much about healing To the point where we're taking place in 2020, but in an alternate universe where COVID isn't happening. I think it makes sense that McQuiston sort of leaned into that a little bit more. Because I think that the reader is also able to pull some of that healing for themselves while they're reading. And you end up kind of going on this journey with August of knowing that even if you don't know exactly where you're going to go by the end of the novel, you're on your way to figuring it out. It's going to be okay. Yeah. And one of the things I did like in this novel that I think was a little bit more realistic in the way that I could take it as a template and see it applied in real life was the relationship between August and her mom. Because August's mom has not thought a lot about how she is transferring her trauma onto August. And like many parents, I think, really struggles with boundaries with that. And by the end of the book, August is able to build some boundaries. But she's also, she goes through a phase where she's angry at her mom and she says no, and it's maybe a little bit unfair to her. 
but then is also still able by the end to empathize with her and be like, oh, wait, I now see your trauma. I see what happened to you. I see how this was unfair to you. And here's what actually happened to your brother so that her mom can heal. And then they they are able to have a better, healthier relationship as a result of that. And I don't know, I felt like that was really beautiful because, you know, I have I've had problems with my parents and I have a lot of friends who have problems with their parents. And I think part of growing up is, I mean, some people really do just have evil parents, but I think for the most part, I think people try to be good. And I don't think that that means that you need to necessarily let people who have harmed you into your life. Boundaries are good, especially if harm is being perpetuated onto you as a person. But I think a part of growing up is recognizing that our parents don't have the same tools we have, right? They lived in different societies. I think that there is some sort of human evolution that goes on. I know, at least personally, my parents didn't have a lot of the language that I had to process their emotions. And the reason I have more language is because they gave that to me. Being able to extend that grace while also being able to be like, here is my hard boundary. And this is where I need you to recognize that even though I came out of you, I'm still my own person and I have different needs and you are stepping on them (laughs) is important. I think it is too. And I think it's also an important message for all of the reasons that you just said in a social media culture and landscape that I think is very much prioritizing your ability to cut toxic people out of your life. And in some cases, that is really important. But I think specifically with parental relationships, it's immensely complicated. And I feel like a lot of people understandably don't want to cut their parents out of their lives because they're their parents. And so figuring out how we navigate those boundaries and create those boundaries and where accountability needs to be upheld and where grace needs to be given is a really important process that a lot of people probably go through as an adult, no matter what your trauma scale looked like. And I feel like that aspect was really well done in the book and also really gave the book a grounding of reality that I think it needed. Yeah, so I like that. That's my template that I'm going to take. And listeners, I think that if it's applicable to you, you should maybe take it as well. You know, if it feels safe and good. I'm going to give it to some of my friends who I feel like aren't always very nice to their parents, even though, you know, they're in their mid-20s. So (laughs) be like, grow up. Here is when you need to extend grace. (laughs) Just like that. Harmony will indeed tell you to grow up in that exact tone of voice if you need it. It's a hallmark of being friends with Harmony. There's a lot of tough love going on. (laughs) I do think, though, that especially with the time travel aspect, and of course, this is partially fantasy based, but we do see some like larger community healing that happens, partially with the rallying around of the pancake diner to save it. But as August discovers what happens to her uncle, she discovers that that story is related to Jane and... I don't know that I want to get too into this aspect of the book just because it is based on a very real life historical hate crime that happened where a lot of people, yeah, where a lot of people died. And if you Google it, there are some very traumatic things that come up, which is not my trigger warning. It actually came from smart bitches, trashy books. So thank you to them for offering that trigger warning to the world. But 
it does, I think, showcase the fact that healing can sometimes take decades across communities, but it is possible and that there can be hope for a brighter future and that younger generations can offer comfort and hope and empathy to older generations of the same community, even if they didn't necessarily go through the exact same things and the exact same struggles. Okay. Well, not even talking about the trauma uh, or the tragedy, but Jane herself, I feel like what you just said in terms of younger generations being able to help the older generations, I feel like we see that with Jane's character because Mm -hmm. outside of the tragedy, she had some trauma simply related to being gay in a time when it wasn't okay to be gay. And she had her own trauma with her family and trying to figure out how to come out to them or not come out to them, like how to, how to be around them while still being able to be her full authentic self. And this book also kind of, it, it was a happy ending in every, (laughs) every respect. It kind of showed how Jane's struggles affected. This also kind of plays into Jane's big punk rock identity, but how Jane's struggles made it easier for people like August and her friends to exist and why those struggles were important and how much more Jane went through. Jane was out there punching cops and shit, or I guess not punching cops. She she punched a man who made a racist comment, so she was punching kind of Nazis But she was, like, getting into brawls with cops as well, I think. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I think that, like, when we're talking about extending grace, it needs to not just be to our parents, but we need to recognize our older generations, too, right? If we're looking at a feminist text that's probably, that probably reads problematic now, we also need to be able to recognize how it paved the way for us to even have these conversations about why it's problematic, And I think especially in a situation like this where queer history is often not documented in what we consider to be the formal process of documenting history now, a lot of queer history right now is still through word of mouth and oral storytelling and things like that, which means that our understanding of queer history, I think sometimes as like a, a large overarching field of study can be kind of disjointed sometimes. I feel like as well, it It's also a book that really showcases the power of that story passing down and why that's also a really important valid way of documenting history. But also it means that learning queer history can often be a really individualized process of who and what you were exposed to. And to me, one of the things I took away from that is to really make sure that I'm constantly seeking out new avenues to learn queer history and try and fold it into the mainstream a little bit more because my job is being a professional historian and documenting things in a formal way, which isn't to say that the formal way is the right way to do things or the best way to do things, but it is a way to do things. And queer history isn't often kind of encapsulated in that way. That makes sense. That's good. I mean, we've all seen those TikToks, right? Where there, there's that song about how history hates lovers because historians sometimes don't want to come out and say, Hey, these two people weren't just roommates. They loved each other and were partners. Yeah, that's complicated, but that's maybe a, a different a different podcast episode. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else you really want to cover from this book, Miss Maggie? I know that you wanted to talk about the author's note, which I can't talk as much about because I don't remember the author's note. I don't know 
if I actually listened to it. I think that it all just connects with everything that we were just talking about. And again, thank you to Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Um, I read their conversation as part of prep for this episode, and they reminded me of the author's note and was the reason that I went back to read what McQuiston had to say. But McQuiston, in their author's note, talks really specifically about the fact that this is a book that's meant to unbury their gaze. And part of the way they did that was incorporating um, real life history into the novel, but also giving all of the queer characters a really happy ending. And I just think that that is pretty noble pursuit as much as there are parts of me that push up against that idealism a little bit. And is like, this isn't necessarily the way the world works, or I wish that there was a little bit more realism here. I think that there is something beautiful about pushing up against a trope that is so prevalent still in our culture and just unabashedly celebrating queer love and queer joy and all its very many forms and literally unburying queer characters as part of the climax of this book. Yeah. And I mean, this is at the end of the day, a romance novel, right? Mm -hmm. And we go to romance novels for escapism, for those happy endings. And so I don't know. I think that McQuiston, am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that they did well by their genre by doing that, by giving us all of those happy endings. I do too. Thanks, Casey McQuiston. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to talk about or should we talk about good things we did this week? Oh, are we still doing that? Did we do that last time? I I, I didn't know that we were still doing that. Are we still doing that? I mean, we can. I got got a good thing I did this week. (laughs) What did you do this week? (laughs) Well... I was bored at work and I need to listen to things when I'm bored and there weren't any students in the library, so I could. So I listened to this great community Twitter thing. Just so if if people aren't aware, if you're on Twitter, there are now Twitter spaces where you can just tune into conversations. Super fun. I recommend it. But I have a recommendation for you all, especially if you're in the education field. But I listened to this great conversation on critical race theory and its application to education. Essentially, it was talking about how critical race theory isn't actually taught in K-12 through education because critical race theory is a theoretical framework um, that we use primarily in graduate school (laughs) and through law theory. So all of, if you've been living under a rock or if you just like don't, aren't tuned into education news, book bannings and curriculum bannings are especially bad right now. There is a big push from the right and from local communities to sanitize even further our education system and make it so that students don't learn anything about race or societal inequities. (laughs) So this was in response to that, but it's a part of a larger movement that you can interact with directly on Twitter called Hip Hop Ed, and I encourage you to. Nice. I love that. Yeah. So it wasn't really a good thing. (laughs) It was just something I participated in, kind of. (laughs) What about you, Miss Maggie? (laughs) What did I do this week? I started composting this week. I care about the planet. That feels like a good thing. That is a good thing. What do you read in Harmony? Well, I'm rereading the Brown Sisters trilogy. But before that, I just finished, what did I just finish? Oh, I finished Sweet and Bitter Magic, which is a sapphic YA book with witches. So, you know, I had to read it. That was okay. (laughs) 
I'm reading more things than usual. Usually I feel like I'm only reading one or two things, but right now I'm reading a lot. So I'm reading Love and Other Disasters by Anita Kelly, which is another queer romance novel. Loving it so far. It takes place on a cooking show. 10 out of 10 for me. Ooh. I'm reading Empire of the Wild by Sherry Demily. I'm reading Soul of the Sword by Julie Kagawa. And then for work, I'm reading The Whole Picture, The Colonial Story of the Art in Our Museums and Why We Need to Talk About It by Alice Porter, which is very interesting, but also only focuses on big museums. And I work in a very, very microscopic museum. So it's also occasionally frustrating even though she's doing what she set out to do, if that makes sense to you. Because <laughs> you can't always apply it. Yeah, it's just hard because I think that sometimes in my field, people talk about museums do this, museums do that, but they're only talking about museums of a certain size, whereas the majority of museums in the US at the very least have very limited staff size, very small collections and very limited operating budget. So while some of those larger systemic issues do overlap and there is a Venn diagram, small museums especially, I think, suffer a different set of problems, especially in terms of colonial legacy. Mm. All right, there you all have it. Those are your recs for this week. (laughs) Next week, we are doing another fun episode. And then we're going to come back with you where we're going to do the Brown Sisters ambitiously. We're going to try and do the Brown Sisters all in one episode. Because we've gotten real lazy in our old age. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. But it's good. It's fine. It will be good. Maybe it will be a long episode. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see. Talk to you all next week. Goodbye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.